You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is taken from Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. If it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Russell Moore tells a story of listening to a national, ro- uh, national radio program that was dedicated, well, at least an episode dedicated to the slaughtering of cows. And it wasn't so much about the slaughtering, but the process that leads up to it. And this is especially important because cows, if they're in distress, they release a stress hormone that makes the quality of the meat decrease. So the goal of the process leading up to a cow being slaughtered is comfort and ease, nothing alarming. And this program explained that workers should not yell at cows. They should not prod cows. They should keep cows content and comfortable because if you keep them content and you keep them comfortable, they will go where they are led. Don't surprise them. Do not unnerve them. And above all, do not hurt them. Well, until, you know. And so a scientist designed a system where cows are led in silence onto a ramp. They go through what's called a squeeze chute. It's a gentle device that applies gentle pressure that mimics a mother's nuzzling touch. The cattle continue down a ramp onto a smoothly curving path. No sudden turns. In fact, they feel as if they're experiencing a return home. And as they go along the path, they don't even notice that their hooves are no longer touching the ground. A conveyor belt slightly lifts them gently upward, and then they go from livestock to meat. Without ever being aware, without ever having even a sense that they should be alarmed by this. No warning signs along the way. What a distressing way to begin a sermon, huh? 
that this illustrates actually that our greatest dangers to faith, and I, I actually mean this, our greatest dangers to faith are not sharp turns, they're not sharp prods, they're not deeply distressful events in our lives that unnerve us. The greatest dangers to our faith are not pain or suffering. The greatest danger that we face are being lulled, is being lulled and eased into our own spiritual death while not even knowing that it's happening. Thinking, experiencing a sensation that I'm going home That's why the warning passages of Hebrews are so important. There are actually five warning sections in the letter of Hebrews, and I have to be honest, this one's probably the most difficult. These warning signs and these warning scripture passages are not intended to make genuine Christians feel unstable in their faith. In fact, the passage that we're looking at today concludes with confidence and full assurance. So I need you to hear me really clearly. God desires that you would live with assurance of better things concerning salvation in Jesus Christ. However, this is intended to unsettle everyone who is either neglecting or rejecting the things of Jesus. Those who are slowly but surely making their way toward their own destruction. So if you don't feel warned today, I have failed God's word and I have failed you. Here's the big idea. You're either moving forward in maturity or you are falling away in apostasy. So if you're taking notes, we're gonna look first at foundations. Look with me again in verses one through three. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, the author of Hebrews Uh, is urging this church in some specific things here, but he is not saying leave behind the elementary doctrines of Christ as if these foundational truths now are not important, that we're moving on to bigger and better things than Jesus Christ. No. Instead, what he is saying is, okay, the foundation is set. Now, let's build upon them. So consider a building project. Getting the foundation right is absolutely vital. In fact, this is the way that Jesus concludes his great sermon on the mount, that if the foundation is bad, the whole thing is going to fall apart. Or the Apostle Paul explains it this way in 1 Corinthians 3. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and then someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the end goal is not simply to have a solid Christ-centered foundation as important as that is. The end goal is to build upon that Christ-centered foundation. 
And once that foundation has been set, there is no need to go back and repeat over and over again that process. What he's saying is let's get building, church. Let's get moving toward maturity. So the foundations listed here were topics that were likely going to be covered in the first century equivalent to a new believer's class in a church full of Hebrew converts. The first grouping of topics are repentance and faith, the basics about how you become a Christian. You gotta acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you need saving. It means repenting of your sin as rebellion towards God and turning towards Jesus in trust, trusting on his righteousness on our behalf, trusting in his sacrificial death in our place, trusting in his forgiveness, his freedom, and the new life that he alone offers us through faith, repentance and faith. The next grouping is instructions about washing and the laying on of hands. It is more than likely what he's talking about here is baptism. In fact, the word in the original language is baptismos, baptism. Baptism is the sign and the seal of God's promise for his covenant people. And as you know, baptism is a very symbolic act. And one of the things that baptism represents is that we've been washed Washed of all of our sins, cleansed of all of our unrighteousness and impurity and brought into the family of God. The third grouping is the resurrection and eternal judgment. He's referring to the hope of the Christian faith that we live right now with a very real expectation. And watch your hallelujah here in a second. Jesus is coming again. (laughs) Amen. You can say amen. You can say hallelujah. I really don't care. (laughs) I really don't. To judge the living and the dead. Coming again to make all things new. That every single person will stand before the Lord and give an account for our life. And just as Jesus was raised on the third day, all believers throughout all time will be raised with him into eternal life. So these are the foundations that we now must build upon. If you're a new believer... Or if you are here just searching the things of Christianity, you're on the fence, you're skeptical, you want to know more about Jesus, we are glad that you are here and you're in the right place. And it really is only fitting that you would be taught those foundations of the Christian faith. There's no shame in what's being said here. But remember, Hebrews is being written to a church that is nearly 30 years old. The point here is progress. It's impossible for a genuine Christian to not make progress in the faith. Now, here's the truth. Some are going to sprint across the finish line. Other people are going to go into it running with just a smooth stride. Some people are going to walk. Some people are going to like barely limp along. And some of us will crawl just tooth and nail across the finish line. But here's the hope. All God's people will move forward. That's the basic assumption here. In fact, the theological term for this is perseverance of the saints. It means that all true believers, indeed, will continue in the faith to the end of their lives. This is the author's 
underlying assumption about his readers. That's why he is able to say, all right, guys, let's go on. Let's keep going. Let's set our sights towards the goal and move in that direction. John Owen described the words, let us go on. What they do is they picture the progress that a ship makes at full sail. All the sails up and open. And that's a really helpful picture for us because movement towards the goal is not self-generated energy. It's not someone saying, you know what, I, I really need to try harder today. It's lifting the sails of faith and being filled with the wind of the Spirit and moving forward in the grace and in the energy that God provides. And so the author says, let's get moving. But secondly, he addresses falling away, falling away. So a theme that we explored in our vision series in the month of January is that spiritual movement is never our problem. Direction is. We are always moving toward or away from the life of Christ. And the, the passage here in Hebrews is reiterating, reiterating that. You are either moving forward in spiritual maturity, you are either being built up in Christ or you are falling away in apostasy. What is apostasy? Apostasy is abandoning faith in Jesus. Apostasy is rejecting the blessings of the Christian life and despising in your heart the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, if maybe some of us are here asking, Oh gosh, am I committing apostasy right now? If you care, you're probably not. If this is a concern and like, oh gosh, oh, you're probably not. And this does not mean, apostasy does not mean making a certain amount of sins or, you know, like committing, like reaching a, a certain threshold of sins where like St. Peter's at the gates of heaven. He's like, whoa, man, you crossed the hundred sins in one day mark. Apostasy, Done. Now, this is a deliberate choice to reject the gift of God's grace that is found in Jesus, which is the true unforgivable sin, to reject it. And while apostasy itself is a clear rejection of Jesus Christ, here's the tricky part. The road toward apostasy is actually very subtle and oftentimes very gentle. And so it's small, overlooked, incremental, smooth steps away. As we saw earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, it's that slow, steady drift that over time takes someone away from Christianity with no way to return and no desire to return. So while the author here has confidence about this church, and I I'm not an apostle and a writer of scripture, but I have a similar confidence about this church as well. But here's the truth. In this first century church, along with every other Christian church in history, including ours, there were true believers and there were false believers. I have to imagine right now in this room, there are true believers and there are false believers. There are those moving towards Jesus and those who are moving away. Now, pay attention here because the categories are not strong and weak Christians. This is not talking about, you know, the victorious, abundant life Christians and then the like, we're, we're just struggling to move along here kind of Christians. This is not a conversation about the strength 
of your faith. This is about whether or not you have trusted in Christ. So imagine with me an airplane. One person sitting in 12B, middle seat there, terrified, shaking, holding the armrest the whole time, eyes closed, took a Valium before, maybe even purchases an adult beverage along the way, just shaking. The person in 12C in the aisle flies every single week, no big deal. They fall asleep and take off and landing and they like, are we, is it done? But here's the deal. Both of them have varying degrees of faith, but they're in the same object. They're in the same plane, and that's what matters most. Back around the New Year's, I don't know if you saw this on the news, but a, uh, some, like a panel or a door like, flew off of a Boeing 737 mid-flight above Portland. That week, I had to fly. So I'm like, I think this airline is Airbus. I'm, I'm, I'm Okay. And I sit down in the pamphlet staring right at me. It says, welcome aboard Boeing 737. I'm like, I don't feel good right now. <laughs> I'm normally okay, but this is kind of terrifying. But my emotions, my lack of confidence in that moment did not change the outcome. Because I was in the plane. It's not the amount of your faith that's being questioned here. It's the object of your faith. Are you trusting in Christ or are you not? Are you clinging to Jesus or are you rejecting him? Are you making progress in your faith or are you reverting back to false saviors? For this church in the first century, they would have been reverting back to their old familiar practices of Judaism with the priests and the temple and the animal sacrifices, all of the things that undermine faith in Jesus Christ and promote a self-righteousness, a works-based righteousness. For us, it could be a number of ways that we're tempted to revert back to some false savior. The author of Hebrews goes on in verses four through six to say this, for it is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Those are difficult words. So there will be those who participate in the life of the Christian church who receive the benefits, the manifold benefits of Christian community, they come and they partake of the Lord's Supper and they experience an atmosphere like in the room today where the Spirit of God is moving, the Spirit of God is speaking to people's life, the Spirit of God is pouring out gifts upon his people. They're gonna stand under or sit under the preaching of God's word and power. They're even gonna get a foretaste of heaven to come and still fall away. Why? Because they were near to the things of God. They were surrounded by the things of God. They were even, through baptism, immersed in the things of God. But never genuinely repented and believed in Christ. And so it was only a matter of time. They fell away. They rejected Christianity. I think we can all think of right now, we probably already are, think of people that we thought were genuine believers 
Man, they, they were the real deal. They loved Jesus. They followed Jesus. They said all the right things. They were at all the right events and on and on and on. And now they live in opposition towards Christ. I can't tell you how many even pastors I've heard of this happening to. It's terrifying. They, they, they were pursuing Jesus. And now, not only are they not, but they're living in opposition to Christian faith. So the point here is not that God can't forgive someone who's fallen away. That word impossible has nothing to do with God. You can't put impossible next to God unless you're talking about sin and injustice. Okay, God is capable of saving even to the furthest reaches. The point here is that if you reject Jesus now, there is no hope you're going to return. And there will be no means for the Christian community to restore you back again. What the author of Hebrews is doing right now is he's cutting off the legs of false hope. Well, you know, I, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid at a Christian camp. Well, you know, I was baptized as a child. Well, I've been coming to church for like 20 years and serving and giving my money. He's cutting off the legs of all of these forms of false hope and saying, if you treat Christianity like a revolving door, if you're relating to Jesus flippantly, or you think that you're going to like live how you want to live, and then one day you're going to take God serious. Well, I'm just going to do my thing now, but one day I'll take Christian faith serious. He says, you have zero hope for your future. Not even a shred of hope for your future. Zero. And I will not contradict the scriptures to give you a false hope. Zero. Jesus was crucified once and for all so that you and I could be saved once and for all. Friend, if I could lose my salvation, I would have a long time ago. But that assurance is not an open door to persist in rebellion. If you persist in your rebellion towards his grace, it is essentially to repeat the actions of first century crowds in Jerusalem against Jesus who mocked him, shamed him, rejected him, and crucified him. There is no way to be restored if you reject the only way, which is repentance and faith and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Third, he addresses fruit. The scriptures will do that. They're like leaning in and then it just mixes a metaphor, like we're moving in a different direction. Verses seven through eight, the land that has drunk the rain that falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose, for, uh, whose sake it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. So the analogy shifts here to rain and produce. When the rain falls, this feels very relevant right now, it causes things to grow. Trees, fruit trees, and crops are watered, and then they grow, and then they flourish. But as I have sadly learned through these last series of atmospheric rivers, it causes things in your backyard unwanted plants to grow as well. Like, where did all these weeds come from? What is that plant? I never even planted that thing. 
weeds, thorns, thistles, unwanted plants. So the idea here is that the goodness of God descends on all people. That sun that broke through that stained glass shines on the righteous and the wicked. But the results vary. It's kind of a tale of parenting. Different outcomes under the same conditions. Some people bear fruit. Other people bear thorns and thistles. And by the way, this would have been very familiar language to a Hebrew audience. Their minds would have almost immediately gone back to Genesis chapter 3. The curse, thorns, and thistles. So let me ask you, have you ever wondered why people who claim Christian faith can be so prickly? Okay, I'll stay away from you today. Why some people can experience such amazing things from God, but produce some really nasty behaviors. This verse explains why. People are showered in God's kindness, but through unbelief, through entitlement, and through pride, they actually become worse as a result. The blessings of God make them worse people. Or as Romans 2 would explain it, presuming upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead them to repentance. So they interpret God's kindness as God's approval on their life. So they carry with them this false assurance that I'm, I'm blessed and highly favored from the Lord because things are going well in their life right now. Well, I, I'm in God's will right now because I've got these certain benefits in my life. I got the raise, I got the job, I got the child, I got the marriage. God must be blessing me. I must be living under his favor when in reality they're actually experiencing the curse they think they are moving forward toward heaven, but they're actually moving closer towards their own destruction like thorns and thistles do. They are actually creeping towards the flames of hell. And they think everything is fine and dandy. God's kindness in your life is not assurance of genuine faith. Fruit is. So when the reign of God's grace falls on a heart of faith, the kind of heart that Jesus describes as good soil. What happens? It produces fruit. Tangible evidence that God's life-giving spirit is now at work within our lives. One of the historical documents of the Christian faith, it's called the Heidelberg Catechism, it asks a really important question. And I'm gonna paraphrase it for us. It says, it asks, since we have been saved from sin and misery, not according to our own merits, but according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, why do good works matter? In other words, if my good works don't save me, do my actions actually matter? And among many of the answers, yes, that it provides, one is this, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits. So why do our actions matter? Well, for a lot of reasons. But for one reason primarily, so that we can be assured that our faith is not empty and dead, but it's real and it's alive. And while we are not saved by our good works for God, the faith that does save us produces good works for God. It's not our fruit that saves 
But we cannot be saved apart from a fruitless faith. I can tell you honestly right now, I am not who I want to be. But I can also tell you that I'm not who I used to be. And in those moments where I am frustrated with my own progress, and maybe you can associate with that, I have to remember what God has done in my life, the change that God has brought about in my heart, the fruit that I could have never produced on my own apart from the powerful work of the Holy Spirit within me. And so as a good pastor should, the author of Hebrews is pointing out in the church the evidences of life that are present among them. Look with me again in verses 9 through 10. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name and in serving the saints as you still do. So here's the fruit. Here's the clear signs of salvation that work in them and in us. Your labor in the ministry your affection and love for Jesus Christ, and your growing care and concern for other uh, people, other people within the body of Christ. So here's the litmus test of faith. It's simple, but it's objective. And when faith feels so subjective and you're all up in your feelings and you don't know what to believe, here is the litmus test of faith. Do you have a growing desire to invest your life in the kingdom of God? Do you have an ever-increasing love and affection for the person of Jesus Christ? And do you find yourself moving towards God's people with love and care? These are the ways, he says, you can feel sure of better things. I love that. That speaks to a 21st century mind. I don't want to just know it. I want to feel it deep in my bones. And here's how the author says you can feel it deep in your bones through the evidence of this fruit. Let's look finally and briefly at full assurance. You guys still with me? When we are united with Christ through faith, all that is true of Jesus becomes true of us. That is how we are called here, the beloved. Don't take that for granted. That is a term that is reserved for Jesus alone. Behold, my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And now it's being assigned to us. We are graciously re-identified as the beloved so long as we are in faith or in Christ through faith. But for the Christian, not only is our identity bound to Jesus, but our future is bound to him too. We are inextricably tied to Jesus. Where he is, we will be also. Which means for God to now reject me, he would have to reject Jesus. For the believer to be kicked out of heaven, Jesus would have to be kicked out of heaven first. See, the intention here is not to leave you in a state of doubt about your future with God, and that is not my goal as well. The clear objective is that believers would live and flourish in a state of what's described here as full assurance, abundant confidence, Christ died and rose so that you and I could approach God with confidence and boldly. He ascended to the right hand of the Father as a sure pledge. Where he is, we will be also in eternity. 
And so the author of Hebrews wants us to now experience the eagerness that that assurance stirs up within the church. Look with me finally in verses 11 through 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Earnestness means an eager, intense pursuit. Earnestness and assurance. And it's hard to tell like where one ends and the other begins. Does earnestness bring assurance or does assurance bring earnestness? And the answer is, yeah, both. So don't be sluggish in your faith now. Christian, reality, this is not the time to kick back and cruise. Instead, let the confidence that you have in Jesus fuel your pursuit of him. Let the, the assurance that we have through the Spirit now energize you to keep going, to set yourself moving toward the horizon and not stop. I love this portion of the, of the book, The Voyage of the Don Treader. The, voy uh, the Don Treader is a ship that sails eastward in pursuit of lost people and new adventures. And on board, there's this little ambitious mouse named Reepicheep. And Reepicheep describes himself as being motivated with this deep longing for Aslan's country. And for years, he, he has been taught about this place where the sky and the water meet, where the waves grow sweet, where you can finally have all that you seek. And he describes it as like a spell that has come upon him. It, it's one that he can't shake. It drives and it motivates everything he does. And then he says these words, when I can, while I can, I sail east in the Dawn Treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. It's a little boat. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. He's a mouse. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. Sailing, paddling, swimming, Sinking, sprinting, running, walking, limping, or crawling. Set your face toward the horizon of eternity with Jesus Christ. And friend, hear me clearly, keep going. Keep going. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.